This podcast is also part of a pod course, which is available for credit on speechtherapypd.com. All you need to do is register for the course, complete the requirements, and you will receive credit. Speechtherapypd.com is a video continuing education company, a certified ASHA CE provider. More than ever, I am super selective on how I spend my time, whether it's choosing which emails to read or how I get my continuing ed units. I want value for my time and efforts. I'm Shar Beauchart, and I bet you can relate. So when I say I get my CEUs from SpeechTherapyPD.com, just know their speech-language videos and pod courses are practical and totally worth it. And right now, you have the exclusive opportunity to pay less for the subscription than I did. <laughs> okay? Memorize this discount code. It's SHAR, C-H-A-R. Just go to SpeechTherapyPD.com, subscribe, and at checkout, type in what? SHAR, C-H-A-R. You get a $10 discount for heaven's sakes. <laughs> Do it now. It doesn't take long. SpeechTherapyPD.com. You and your speech kids will be glad you did. It's time well spent. Welcome to The Speech Link. I'm your host, Shar Beauchart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Have you ever thought about doing telepractice? Or maybe you've already done it or even do it. (laughs) I've entertained the idea, and honestly, I've been on the fence whether it was something I could do or even wanted to do, but mostly I wondered if therapy done via telepractice was effective and beneficial for my therapy kids. Since talking with Kristen, I have a decidedly more positive view. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Grab your pencil and paper. This lady is informed, and she shares all the practical info that we need to know. Here we go. Today, my guest is Kristen Edwards. She earned her master's in communication sciences and disorders from Radford University in Virginia. She has an extensive therapeutic background. She started at Wake Forest Baptist Medical Center in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and did therapy there, among other things, for a year. Then she moved into the schools and was a school SLP for nine years in Yadkin County Schools, also in North Carolina. From there, she hired on with Presence Telecare and was a speech-language pathologist for almost two years where she provided direct therapy services via telepractice. No doubt she did an amazing job because she moved into the clinical quality manager position for Presence Learning, and she's been with them in that capacity for over seven years. Quite an accomplishment. She knows about telepractice firsthand, and she's going to share it with us. Welcome to the Speech Link, Kristen. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. Oh, great. Well, I imagine there are speech language pathologists who are listening that have done or are doing telepractice, but I'm sure there are others that have not, that are kind of a novice like me. Okay. So we're going to treat this next hour as if we're all just learning about telepractice. Okay. Sounds like a plan. All right. Well, let's start with a very basic question. What is telepractice? Well, in very simple terms, it's live interaction between a therapist and a client. ASHA defines it as the application of telecommunications technology to the delivery of speech-language pathology and audiology professional services at a distance by linking that clinician to the patient for assessments interventions or consultation. And I think the key thing there is one, it's live because sometimes still families, schools think it's not live and it's something recorded and that Mm. is not the case. So that's an important key distinction. Mm -hmm. So it is live therapy from anywhere to anywhere. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So obviously it differs from face-to-face therapy. What are some of the specifics as to how it differs. I mean, what do you gain? What are some of the issues, if you if you may, from doing telepractice as opposed to doing face-to-face therapy? That is going to depend a little bit, of course, on your client. So if okay. I take it first, 
on just a basic level, how it's going to differ is obviously we're not going to be able to touch any of the clients. Um, we're going to have to rely on that audio and that video feed so that we really get almost essentially the same interaction that we would get if we were there on the ground. And I think the key thing about not being able to touch that patient really gets highlighted when you're working with someone you might need to cue for attention, whether it be an adult or a child, or if you think, okay, I need to use a tongue depressor, um, I need to change their positioning, and you can't do any of that. So I think those are some of the obvious differences. Some people, you know, they're now worried about when you get worried about attention and behavior, how do I control those situations when I'm not in a room? How do I access augmentative communication devices that maybe I can no longer program because I'm not in the room? Or then you can even talk about now, if I'm working with children, I don't have manipulatives. I have young children that now can't play with things because now they're looking at a computer screen. And from there, we can even consider, okay, what about visual impairment? Can you see my screen? So those are all kinds of things that you have to consider. I mean, even adding, you know, sensory issues. Can you wear the headset? Can you handle the lighting coming from the screen? So there's multiple things to consider, and then it kind of has to be done. And I work only with children, so basically child by child, but it still remains the same with an adult that may have some of those same issues, and you have to consider and take each one step by step and kind of problem solve. Okay, this is what I'm seeing. How can I kind of work around it, or what can I change in my environment or their environment so they can access um, the service? Wow. Yeah, there's a lot to consider there. And I'm hoping that we can get into some of those ways that you can implement those and apply some of the comprehensive things that you do and compensatory things that you do. That would be really interesting. Before we get into the nitty gritty there, why would someone contact you? I mean, is it that or contact a teletherapist? Is it that they do not have a therapist in their hometown or maybe a school district is down one or two therapists or a hospital? Why do people actually contact companies that do teletherapy? Great question. And especially when it comes to children in schools, there's a shortage of therapists. So we think about it when we were in grad school and think about, okay, where do I want to work? 65% of undergraduates surveyed didn't want to work in public schools. They're going to work in hospitals or nursing care facilities or pediatric clinics. So we have a shortage right there. And even as earlier as uh, 2015, 52% of SLPs were only employed in school-based setting. So there's just obviously a disconnect there and there's just, we can't meet the supply and demand. So that happens for schools. And then schools also take in that whole caseload piece. Not all states have caps. There are states that we have therapists on the ground that are serving 120 students on their caseload. So one, they're getting burned out. So now therapists are continuing to leave schools. And two, we're just not effectively managing those caseloads. Now, in both settings, whether adult or pediatrics, we have geographic barriers. So we have patients that can't get to their therapy for one reason or another. So we're going to be able to eliminate that barrier. And then, of course, the field of speech pathology is pretty vast. So if I'm being honest, I'm not well-versed in everything. There are some therapists that can better serve a client than I can. And so this gives more access to therapists that have different training for something that an adult or a child might need. Very interesting. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So I would imagine there are some rules and regulations and that kind of thing surrounding telepractice. And it sounds like you are quite selective in the people that do telepractice because you want to have a nice balance and breadth of levels of capability there. But are there rules, regulations? Are there certain stipulations to becoming a person that does telepractice? There are. And the two easiest ones to remember is one to you know, have your ashes seized, but you're going to need to be licensed in the state where you're seated. So I'm licensed in North Carolina and then also licensed in the location of the client. And I say location because adults and students like to travel and in some cases travel for extended periods of time. So if you said, okay, great, I'm going to work with this patient and they live in Florida. And so you have 
your own state license and the Florida license. And then they decided, oh, you know what? Want to go see the grandkids or, oh, we're going to take an extended (laughs) break from school and we're going to be in Colorado for a month. Well, now we have a problem because you also need to be licensed in Colorado. So that's why I say location and not necessarily where they reside because people do like to travel. So that's just the easy answer. It does get a little bit more complicated. You actually need to be careful and go in and look at the state regulations. ASHA does provide the information on their website, but of course, legislation changes quickly and it's going to be on that Board of Health website quicker than ASHA is going to grab it. And so not all states have rules about telepractice. Some actually have no statement. Some have very lengthy statements and they're just changing constantly. In each state, you'll need to look and see what regulations they specifically have. So for instance, they may require an in-person evaluation. They might require the first two or three sessions to also be in-person. So this may be prohibitive. I know one state that's starting to consider and need a second license and you have to register to be able to provide telepractice. So getting the license is hurdle one, monitoring it and making sure that you're up on the regulations is hurdle two. Wow. You know, if someone is considering it, if I wanted to do telepractice and become a person that does that, whether with a company, let's say, where would I even check? To find, do I go to my state speech and hearing association or is it within the education department of the state? How do I access that information? I would always start with like the Board of Health. It has different names, I think, across states and to look at their specific regulations. That's the best place to go. ASHA does help. If you go into ASHA's website and type in state by state, it'll list all the states you can click in. If they have regulations regarding telepractice, ASHA actually has a link and you can click it. ASHA's are not always current since it's always changing. So it's a good place to start, but always go back to the state for the current information. Well, you know, I'm just wondering, for example, I live in Georgia. Am I restricted to working only with individuals that live in Georgia? Or can I, for example, work with somebody in Texas? Well, you can definitely work with someone in Georgia, obviously. To work with someone in Texas, you need to go ahead and do what we call cross-license into that state. So you just apply just like you did for Georgia. And then once you're awarded that license, you can provide services in both states. Now, sometimes it can be a little cumbersome to cross-license because you still have to fill out the applications, pay fees, show verifications of any other licensures that you've had. And that would include active and inactive licenses and maybe get fingerprints and even take exams in some cases for some states. So it's not a quick process. Okay. You know, I'm kind of thinking here too, are there private practitioners that do telepractice or do you have to join with an existing company that you sign up with, you to sign a contract with, or how does that work? Any combination thereof, depending on who you've signed up to work with, but you can work privately on your own and um, create contracts with families or school districts, and then determine what you want to use for your platform or your room, so to speak, to provide the services in. Or you can align yourself with a company. Some companies, you can be a W-2 employee, but many of the companies rather are independent contractors. In some cases, you can do both. You can see some privately, and you can be an independent contractor for a company. So would the situation ever happen where a school district hires you and you become a person that does telepractice or does the school district usually contacts the bigger companies? What's the chain? I've seen it happen in both cases. So it would just be the same if you were working on the ground at a brick and mortar school and you approach them to be a contractor with them and offered telepractice services, they could hire you directly and you work that out. Or you can work with a company who then goes and pursues those schools. So it kind of, I guess, depends on your personality, your business sense. If you know, you're able to go out there or maybe even live in a small community and the schools know you and you can approach them and say, Hey, I can do this. They might say, sure. So it really still varies. I know there's plenty of people um, doing it either way. All right. So this happens, I bet, quite a bit. 
with the schools. Is that correct? Yes. Pretty frequently? It is. And I bet it's happening more now than, say, 15 years ago. Is it on the rise, would you say? I would definitely say it's on the rise as our profession has accepted it because there was resistance just within the speech language pathology community. We were our own worst enemy in some cases because we were saying this can't work and we were telling schools not to do it. And so that has kind of flipped in the last nine years where we used to be resistant and tell people not to do it. We're the ones now advocating for each other and kind of working in a community. So like if we know we have coworkers that have caseloads that are too high, we're now kind of pointing out, let me help you. I don't want Mm. your job. I want you to keep your job, but I want to be able to help you. And so it's kind of flipped the tables a little bit. That sounds promising. Wow. I wish I'd had that. I mean, I worked in California for many years and California is kind of known for having larger caseloads. And I remember at one time I had 110 on my caseload in Riverside Unified School District. I don't think that's the case now, or at least I hope it isn't, but it would have been nice to have had some assistance there. You know, we've all, you know, been where, oh, let's see if we could hire an assistant, you know, a speech aid. But if that isn't possible, someone to kind of take some of our cases and you could kind of pick and choose the ones that would best be in front of a screen and get the best results, I would think, so that you do have a helper. You have some support there. Not all states use SLPAs, so that's not an option in some cases. And California, since that was your example, quickly jumped on the bandwagon, and they're one of the busiest states using a good deal of telepractice. Okay. Well, that does make sense. That makes sense. I would also think that if a school district has a lot of English language learners and there are no SLPs that can you know, speak those particular languages that maybe that would be a good thing to find someone that speaks alternative languages. Absolutely. And so we can pull from more therapists across the world that might speak certain languages. Now, it's still tough. It's a tough niche to find someone that's bilingual, but at least we have a larger pool to pick from than a school that might be a really small area. And there are some Interesting languages I've come across that I really didn't even know existed will get asked sometimes if we have someone that speaks that language. And of course, Spanish is the most predominant, but it really does help some of those districts that just can't quite get enough bilingual therapists. Yes, I know. In fact, I was talking with an SLP friend the other day and, you know, she was just, there is like, I don't know, I don't even remember how many languages she said that there are within her district, I'm going to say it was maybe 50, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's gone way beyond just needing Spanish interpreters. Absolutely. And sometimes it's just one student. Yes. So sometimes we can, you know, oh, say we do happen to have a therapist and we can, you know, kind of help you with that one-off situation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that makes lots of sense. So that sounds really helpful, actually. Char Beauchard here. True story. I just hung up the phone with an SLP that had attended an on-site seminar. She said she loved the seminar, but she forgot to fill out her ASHA participant form. Sounds easy enough, huh? Uh Uh-uh. The seminar was three months ago, and all the paperwork had been submitted, and ASHA doesn't take late forms. So I said, Linda, you have to file an appeal with ASHA. Then she said, this is a nightmare. I drove two hours to get there, two hours to get home, and now I have to file an appeal. I felt for her. And then I said, Linda, have you ever heard of SpeechTherapyPD.com? She said, no. I said, just get your CEUs online, girl. That's what I do. You don't have to leave home. They have over 500 hours of video, a huge variety of topics for SLPs that work with children and adults. And if you don't want to watch a video, then listen to the pod courses and get your CEUs that way. Then she said, they're pretty expensive, right? I said, uh, no. Their plans start at $89 a year, for heaven's sake. And then I I said, do you want the icing on the cake? SpeechTherapyPD.com has scheduled a CEU cruise next summer to Italy and Greece. Woohoo! She said, okay, I'm looking them up right now. 
and so should you. SpeechTherapyPD.com. Check them out. Tell your friends. You'll be glad you did. So let's get a little bit closer to therapy here. If I were thinking about going into telepractice, what are some of the basic tools that I need, you know, above and beyond my licensure and those kinds of things? What do I need in order to provide these services? Well, obviously a computer. And that being said, a computer um, that's been created, built within the last five years, just so your processing speed is fast enough, mm-hmm. a stable internet. Luckily, you can almost find high enough bandwidth speeds anywhere in the country. That wasn't the case nine years ago. I actually had to go get a business account because I could not obtain fast enough speeds. I live out in the country a little bit. So you have to take that in mind, maybe do a little bit of research to make sure you can get your internet speeds fast enough. That will vary with the platforms you use as well. So you have to take that into account. Of course, a headset and a microphone. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't have to be expensive. Doesn't have to be some fancy gaming system. The ones you can get off of Amazon actually work just fine. You need to consider if you want them to be over your ears or in the ear for your comfort level. Um, Even the over the ear ones will start to ache if you're sitting for about four hours and not taking them off your head. So just think of your comfort level. And of course, a camera. Many computers have built-in cameras now and they work great. But then you might need to consider your population. Are you going to need to manipulate that camera? Because then you might need a secondary camera. But those are the basics. And then, of course, the conferencing tool that you want to use um, to provide the service. Okay. So why would I need to move the camera around? If you're working with students that either can't sit for the whole 30 or 45 minutes and you actually, you know, let the child get up. It's okay. There's long wires on those headsets. They can get up, make sure they're not going to trip. Or if you're working with younger students and you want to see their tabletop, and so you want your e-helper or your support person to kind of manipulate their camera, or you want to manipulate yours and show them that, hey, I'm playing cars too. So you'll need to show that tabletop and you won't be able to do that with an internal camera. Also, if you're going to use an iPad and maybe show um, an AAC app Mm -hmm. or different app on your iPad, you're going to need to be able to manipulate your camera so you can kind of bend down to that because you want to keep your face on the screen and keep that camera stable. And then you use a secondary one to manipulate. And that's just really been discovered in the last two years or so that we're like, oh, wait, we can use other cameras and serve other students by manipulating these cameras. Okay, you're saying secondary. So can you have two cameras going simultaneously or are you just talking about an alternative camera? Depends on the platform that you've chosen. I mean, I can't speak to all platforms because I haven't used them all. That one, the bandwidth will hold to let you turn on two at the same time um, and that it allows multiple cameras to run at the same time. But you should, in most cases, be able to run multiple cameras at one time. So yours your secondary, the schools, and their secondary. Well, that does sound like you're covering all the bases, like you're almost there. You're missing out on the tactile piece, but at least you're covering the visual piece and the auditory. Right. Okay, I understand what I need at my end. You know, do I help? How do I help the individuals that are receiving the therapy, the adults that need to organize this system? What do I talk with them about? They need the same systems that I just mentioned. So they'll need all of that and then access to your room or your platform and how to access that. The other thing they'll need if, and sometimes even if it's an adult, dependent on their ability levels, you'll need another adult in the room. And so they can't walk off (laughs) and leave them sitting there. Yep. So you'll need, yeah. especially if it's a child, even if they're 18, um, (laughs) technically we need someone in the room with line of sight on that patient, client, child. And in many cases, they don't need to take part in the session. They won't need to have an extra headset to be plugged in or even listen to the session. They can be behind them and grading papers or working on something else. But for students that we might be using those secondary cameras with, and we might be doing some play-based therapy, that e-helper would more than likely have a second headset on and be taking part in the session and be active in that session. Um, so that's just something to consider that we, we need an extra huh. body um, that we don't usually need in therapy when we're on the ground. 
Okay, so you're calling the person that's there an e-helper, an electronic helper. Is that the person you're calling them or is that a software? Yeah, well, there's different companies and different people kind of call them different things. I think the most common when you get on the Facebook groups is everybody's calling them e-helpers. I'm used to calling them a support person. Okay. So there's no particular name that I, but e-helper I, I see used the most. All right. Boy, that answers some questions. Let's talk about the kids. Are there any age limitations? No, not really. I wouldn't have said that years ago. I mean, birth probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a little young. You can provide services for two and up. So that early intervention age and that therapy will look different than it would if I was working with an eight-year-old, a typically developing eight-year-old. And of course, it's going to look different for the 18-year-old um, that I'm working with. But I would not put restrictions on age necessarily. I think I would start to really see the whole client or child and look at what they need and what their abilities are and not so much the age. You know, it just dawned on me as a telepractice therapist, am I evaluating that child or is somebody at the other end, at that end, evaluating the child, doing the report, you know, going to the meetings and so on? You know, how vested am I into the child, you know, from beginning to end, or do I just come in on the therapy part? Good question. And it can vary. And that will vary with the district that has hired you, so to speak. They may want you to provide that initial evaluation and carry it all the way through. They may not. And I know, for example, South Carolina just changed their laws. And so we actually cannot provide the initial evaluation, hmm. but we can, once they become eligible, provide the reevaluations. So here again, the rules and regulations of the state come into play and what your district wants, but you can provide evaluations. That being said, be careful about copyright laws. The platform you're using, is it reliable and valid? Are you holding a book up to a camera? Is that reliable? Do you need manipulatives and you can't use them now? You need to select another test. So you kind of have to think about what's appropriate for the student and um, how are they going to access it when you present it? Boy, that's a whole nother issue, isn't it? Number one, I mean, diagnostic tools are just darned expensive. I mean, they cost a lot. And especially, you know, if you want to see a whole range, you know, several populations and ages, I mean, you're going to go to the poorhouse just trying to accommodate that. <laughs> I suppose that you could zero in, you know, just in a certain population or age. But wow, I could see where that would be a problem. I'm wondering about the quality of it. The, you know, are you getting accurate responses and so on? Is it valid? I guess is my question. I think it depends on how you're presenting it. I'm lucky in that I work with a platform um, and we've worked with Pearson and the plates for the assessment are actually on the screen. And so the student looks at it just like they would look at it if they were in the room with me. And we have vetted over the last two or three years using those assessments and have compared data to show that it's comparable to, but that took quite a bit of time. And then of course, groups like Pearson, you have to advocate for yourself and then you know get an agreement with them to be allowed to do that. So not everyone has that um, opportunity. Mm. So I just say, you know, proceed with caution. And you do need to list in your evaluation report how the test was given. Yes. And that seems important. Now, is it possible? And I think I know the answer to this, but you never know. Is it possible to have your e-helper there, be that live body there to turn the pages and so on, to have the books and the pictures there along with the protocol that they write on? Yes, I think you can train an e-helper. Um, I also think, again, we were talking about secondary cameras earlier, a document camera, which shines down on, you don't have to manipulate so much. Okay. You can shine down if the student has to write something, you can see it live. That's a good option to put the plates under there um, and then have that e-helper flip the plates. I mean, the biggest thing there is to make sure that e-helper knows they can't grunt or point or cough or give tips to kind of cue the student, which sometimes they want to do, especially if you're in a family's home with a parent or a spouse and they they know it, they know it, just give them a minute. Yeah. Time and time again. Oh, yeah. You know that one. You know, go ahead, point to them. You know that one. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, that's a tough one. And then you would write up the report and so on. And would you be present via camera at the eligibility and IEP meetings? Yes, 
best practice would be that you are present, of course. Um, we highly recommend that you're in whatever platform that you use so that the families can get kind of a flavor for how services are provided if they're not there all the time. That being said, sometimes the computers that are used for therapy aren't available when you're having that meeting. So I would say more often than not, we are phone conferencing in okay. and copies of IEP documents are there at the school location, but we can still lead the meeting. Gotcha. Good. Yeah. This gets involved. It's it's very interesting. I asked you about age limitations. Are there any disability limitations? No, I would not say so. I would, of course, look at the diagnosis of the student and their physical and sensory abilities, cognitive abilities, communication style, and then what kind of support you're going to have in place to determine if they're a good candidate or not. I would not just discredit somebody from reading it on the paper. I always recommend, even sometimes if you read it on paper and you're not 100% sure it's going to work, to take six to eight sessions worth of data um, and give that student some time. Because you never know. Sometimes someone looks fabulous on paper and they actually are not the best candidate. might be something with their personality. They didn't do well with the computer. The time of day is not working and it's just not working. Whereas somebody you read it and you thought, oh my gosh, they're using an AAC device and have some limited mobility. This is going to be really complicated. But if you have a great helper, sometimes they actually do better because now that helper is sitting with them, mm -hmm. watching and assisting with therapy and carryover increases. So I wouldn't necessarily discredit anyone, perhaps visual impairment, depending right. on the degree of visual impairment, that would get a little bit tough. A little bit of motor abilities. You don't have to necessarily stare at the screen because, of course, we have a secondary camera now. You don't have to be able to manipulate the mouse with that helper. But those are just things to consider and then be able to consider, well, how can I change the way you're accessing this or how can I change the way I'm presenting the therapy? Okay. You know, I've been kind of thinking of the, the young ones in elementary and so on, but is this pretty popular in junior high and high schools? Very much so because to a certain degree, it takes away the stigma now that I'm going to speech class. So you can say, you know, oh, you have class in the computer lab right now go ahead and go. And so those students will walk on down and sometimes their peers won't know what they're doing on the computer. In some cases, those students that have been in speech for several years are tired of it and they get reinvigorated because they're like, oh, this is different. This is the computer. I like this better. And sometimes we can see some progress on kids that were, had just plateaued and were done because they were unmotivated. Yeah, I could see that happening. I mean, it's such an electronic world. It makes sense for especially the older kids, maybe even, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth graders even. Yeah. And I get surprised by the younger ones because they're like, oh, I don't know about three or four-year-olds. Um, Their attention is shorter. Four-year-olds are already using iPads and computers some cases at home. Yeah. And they are already able to manipulate the mouse or click a button on the screen. I'm like, oh, what did you just click? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of blows me away. Yeah. It is amazing. I mean, this generation is actually growing up with and living. It's a part of their life. It's a part of their system, their being. So yeah, I could see where this would be advantageous for them. It's helping support general education as well, because many of the integrated testing is now on the computer. And so we're giving them input and access to these computers more often, which helps them um, when they have to go take that integrated test. Okay. So you just mentioned frequency. How frequently do you do therapy with, you know, the typical client in either the schools or private or anywhere? That's not going to change from the way it's done on ground. Um, the IEP will dictate how much therapy that they're going to have. Now, there might be students that, since this is traditionally a pull-out model, that really need push in. In not all cases, it is that easy to push in with this computer and sit in their classroom. You actually can figure out some ways to do it, but now we're looking at, you know, other students again in the room. And so sometimes that is easier to somebody that, you know, is there on the ground to provide that service. And some of those quick now where we do articulation for 10 minute drills and kind of go through students very quickly, um, you can do it. You're just going to, you would have to have the students kind of lined up. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I have a few more questions here. Let's talk about therapy and typical sessions and different ages, maybe some of the 
positives and the negatives, the challenges and so on. And I'd like to hear about a typical therapy session, you know, if there is such a thing. So we basically have one child, you said. No, it could be a group. But it could be a group. Okay. And a group of two, three? Uh, Best practice, I would say no more than three. No more than three. Okay. All right. Seems like I remember you saying that. Okay. And that would also help with the multiple cameras. (laughs) Yeah. So you don't have them rotating around in front of the camera. Okay. Right. Okay. So what kind of materials do I have? I mean, obviously I have to have something visual. Is it pretty much play-based, game-based most of the time? Or what kind of materials am I using with most kids? Let's just take with a speech and articulation phonological issue. It won't really look any different than it would if you're on the ground. So you'll have access to any of the materials that you own. Depending on your platform, in some cases, you're able to upload onto like a whiteboard feature, the document that would be in your book that you might have copied or opened the book to let them see. You're able to put it on your screen so that they can see it. Most of those whiteboards also have, you know, typing and drawing tools so they can circle things um, and answer by typing on the screen or drawing. So you'll have that feature. In some cases, you're able to actually screen share something else from the internet. So if you wanted to do something curriculum-based, maybe talk about insects and have something for reading comprehension, or even circle what sounds I need to um, work on within that paragraph, you can still pull it up on the screen. So fairly traditional therapy is pretty easy to do. Depending on your platform will depend on if you can pull up any games and how well screen share might work so that you can pull up the game from an internet or another source. It kind of depends on what system you've chosen to use. Okay. So you're talking about the software that I have on my computer that enables this? Is that what you're talking about? Um, The platforms would be like a conferencing tool um, that you pay money to access and their whiteboard and their features will allow you to pull up things that you have on your hard drive. Okay. Because I'm, you know, I'm familiar with apps, you know, that you pull up on the iPad and, you know, other devices, touchscreen devices, but this is within that platform. Right. And I don't believe that you can pull up apps on any of the conferencing tools, but you could use your secondary camera and show your iPad. All right. And so then it would be beneficial for the child to have an iPad at the other side and doing the activity. That would be nice. And I would say that's probably highly unlikely. A lot of them have Chromebooks. Okay. They do. Okay. Though, with options. I think most schools have Chromebooks. Some have iPads. Some lucky schools get get the iPads. Right. Um, but they're a little more costly. Not that one is better than the other. I'm not advocating for one or the other, but they're a little more costly. And I, you know, the school that I was just at had, uh, you know, several iPads, uh, you know, and they purchased, they sprung for the iPads, but they won't spring to put the apps on. <laughs> so they're walking around with all of the light versions, you know, and they can't, they can only take their therapy so far or the classroom instructions so far. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, you'll pay thousands of dollars, you know, let's just spring for this 99 cent app. So that's, you know, that's one of my concerns. And I don't know if that's still happening, but you know, it just depends on the district, I guess. But really your therapy is, it's not going to look very different at all. Yeah. But you can do therapy without having a platform, right? I mean, it's a little more cumbersome or no, it's more difficult. Well, we wouldn't want to use um, FaceTime or Skype because they're not going to be HIPAA and FERPA compliant. No, they're not compliant. So you'd want to pick one that is compliant and has some encryption to it, especially if you also need to share, uh, you know, you think we have to share information. Maybe you, you know, need to share your report with the school. How are you going to, are you going to password protect that document? Are you, you know, how are you going to share that so that it's protected? So those are other things that you have to consider. But I would, I would think you would still need some sort of conferencing tool or platform that's been specifically created for therapy. I see. So if you're a private practitioner, you're not just going to jump on FaceTime and do therapy, at least not legally. I would not recommend it. (laughs) Okay. Well, that answers another question. (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, So tell me, how do you, let's say that you had three children in a group. How do you manage that? From a logistic standpoint in the cameras, either every student has their own Chromebook, their own iPad, or their own computer. 
So each, you have like one camera on for each child. If they're early elementary age, maybe up to sixth grade, you can actually put two at one device and they can sit side by side. The older kids don't like to sit side by side. They don't like to touch each other. <laughs> so, and sometimes you might have behavior issues where you, you may be two, but you need them each on their own computer. So they're not that close together. Um, which is the great thing about telepractice. If you think about it now is we could serve a district and I can now pull two students from two different school buildings in that one district because they're signing in on their own computers. Oh, so they're not sitting there in the same room next to one another. So I'm not based to the one building. They don't have to be. Right. They don't have to be. Right. They don't have to be. Oh, son of a gun. Wow. See, this is just, it's mind boggling to me. Like, I mean, how do you coordinate all that? Do you send everybody a text message and say, okay, go now to the e-helper? You know, (laughs) we're getting on now. It's 10 o'clock. Hop on. (laughs) Well, I'm going to say an evil word to all of those that have worked in schools for a long time. Schedule. (laughs) (laughs) That um, wonderful scheduling piece, unfortunately, doesn't go away. You still have to schedule it. We still um, have to adhere to what the district needs and can't pull students at certain times. And same thing with adults. There may be times and, you know, other appointments that your adults have. And so you're going to have to schedule them. The schedule should stay consistent. So it's the same time every day, every day they're supposed to meet. And so your e-helper knows this is when therapy is, this is where the student has to be. And now I sign in. Oh, so how do you get, I know this is crazy, but you know, how do you get the word that the child is sick that day? You know, who manages that? You could be sitting there going like, where is Jimmy? And we have. They forget to tell us even when we have policies around that. So there's a keyword there, policies set up expectations with everyone at the school site. So who's going to relay that information for things like even weather delays, um, which you can get on the school's call list. So they'll automatically ring your phone. Mm-hmm. So you'll know. But for student absences, I would pick either your e-helper or someone the school has chosen to notify you that the, the student is going to be absent. Now, the very beginning of the day, sometimes that gets complicated because even that helper doesn't know if you have an eight o'clock session and school started five minutes ago, sometimes y'all are going to find out together. <laughs> but um, usually, you know, you just, do you want, you know, a text? Do you want them to call? Do you want them to shoot you an email to let you know the following students are going to be absent? So whatever kind of procedure you put in place. Okay. So what if I want to send home homework with the child? Is that possible? Sure. What do I do? Sure. Um, I think the easiest thing is email if the family has access to it. If not, you can do it the old fashioned way as long as your school district and your helper agrees that you might send them the email. They print it and put it in the child's backpack, um, just like we do for there on the ground. I mean, and I think some therapists have, you know, websites that they direct parents to and say, you can go here if you want additional information. And there may actually even be some companies that have it embedded into their program where a parent can click in and select homework. Okay. So there are companies out there that have created programs just for speech therapy telepractice. Is that correct? And there's speech therapy on there and language therapy on there and voice or stuttering. Is that correct? I mean, what, what do those programs look like? There are companies that have created the platforms and within... Um, some of the I, and program may not have been the best choice of words. So sometimes on their on their website, they'll have a homework link. And I'm under the assumption, because I don't work with different companies, that some of those platforms actually may have, parent can have access and retrieve homework within that platform. Oh. So let's say I'm in private practice and I would like to do, you know, and I'm, I'm a hustler and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to jump through the hoops and I'm going to get my licensure in at least five different states. And I want a nice platform, you know, to work on. I'm serious about this. You know, do you just Google it? (laughs) I mean, how do you find out where to go and how to do all of that? Is there a course maybe that somebody does? You know, how do you find out? There are courses. And if you go to Facebook and type in the search bar and put telepractice groups. There are at least two very active ones. And some of the clinicians on there offer courses. Um, And they also have under the file button, they'll list the platforms that you can purchase. And people have already kind of given you the positive, the negatives, the cost. They list out companies that you can be independent contractors with. 
and they list how much you might be paid and all their positives and negatives. It's all kind of already out there. Oh my, this is a whole nother world, isn't it? And they're adding every day. I go on it all the time. Do you? Yeah, because you have to keep up. Yeah. Well, you are the clinical quality manager. And tell me what that means. What do you get to do? For my company, I represent the Southeastern United States. And I work with the districts that my company has a contract with and the independent contractors. And I'm kind of the the go-between for any escalation points or to answer any clinical questions. I'm kind of just their helper. I'm there for the district if they have any concerns, and I'm there for the therapist if they have any concerns. So kind of like a layer of clinical support. Okay. So an escalation point, I don't know what that is. What does that mean? If something's not going well, so that could vary. It could be technology failure. It could be the therapist is not a good fit for telepractice once now that she's gotten started and realized, hmm, this is not what I thought it was going to be. So maybe she needs coaching. Or maybe the school is like, we think she should be doing X, Y, and Z, but she's doing this. So that kind of thing, or they disagree with the way that she did a report. Um, And so I'm kind of the person that can act on behalf of the therapist and the school. Okay. So you're troubleshooting in some cases. Basically, in some cases, I get lots of praises and I get to hear your therapists (laughs) are wonderful and she's done a great job. And I get to observe sessions and watch people do amazing things and learn from amazing therapists. There are hundreds of providers that work for my company and I get to watch people do therapy and learn from them. Oh, well, that's great. Well, I imagine you are very good at what you do. I would hope so. I don't, I don't toot my own horn. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate that. You know, I did go to your, uh, your LinkedIn page and I read a quote that you have there and it says, hire for passion first, experience second and credentials third. And that's by a fellow named Paul Alofs, CEO, Princess Margaret Cancer Foundation. Apparently that's important to you. What does that mean to you? I think if you're passionate and an advocate, in my case, for children and families, that you have, you're going to hit it most of the time. You're going to figure out what that child or that student needs, even if it's not something you learned. So that's where experience is second, because we can learn new things all the time and learn from each other. And of course, the field of speech pathology constantly changes. So you need to be passionate, you need to love it, and then you need to go find out the information to suit what that child or client needs. Now, in our case, our credentials are required. And so I think what he kind of meant in that case is it doesn't always take a person with a bachelor's degree to do some jobs because if they're passionate and can learn it, they didn't necessarily need that degree. Now, of course, we have to. That's why I think passion comes first. I do think in telepractice, somebody said, what makes a good clinician? That asked me once. Of course, one that's passionate and one that's good on camera. Because there's some wonderful therapists that are brilliant Mm. that'll put a child to sleep on camera. That's just not their niche. So recognize if it's your niche, you have to be highly animated because you're having to maintain attention of people that you can't reach out to now. And so it's not for everybody. And just like it's not for every client, it's not for every therapist. Yes. Ah, boy, that really hits a point because you want to maintain their focus, their interest. And you want to have the language skills to let them know what you want them to do and what maybe what they are doing so that you could reflect to them verbally what they're doing. Uh, I would think that good language skills and animation would be just top notch. And that probably goes along with the passion. Also probably goes along with the experience of knowing what you're doing. And absolutely. That is why um, we'll see a lot on those Facebook pages. um, People say, well, I, I never worked in schools or I've only worked with adults or I'm in my CFY. And sometimes there are companies that will hire you in some cases not because they want you to get that experience under your belt. So you're not learning a whole new service delivery model and all kinds of paperwork on top of, you know, being a fairly new therapist. Mm -hmm. Okay. I get it. That just makes lots and lots of sense. You know, this has been an amazingly fascinating interview. And I do have one more question for you. And this one's probably a little more personal. And here's the question. It is, what advice do you have for today's therapist? Um, My advice is, it really goes to heart for me. I often had a spirit of fear as I have grown up. 
But as I've gotten older, I've learned, don't be afraid. Don't be fearful. Because I think that's what telepractice people, in some cases, scared of the unknown. Um, so go ahead, rip the band-aid, jump in with both feet. You have nothing to lose. And like I said, since the field's always changing, you need to be ready to learn something new. And those of us who have been in telepractice are happy to help you, show you, and then learn things from you. Because I know there are new graduates out there that have learned evidence-based skills that I wasn't taught 20-some years ago. I'd love to learn that from them and then share my own experiences. So together, we can just you know expand the field of speech pathology and the way we service our clients. And so I think that just means you can't, you can't be afraid to kind of jump in and, and do something you didn't think you were going to do. Because of course, when I got out of school, this didn't exist. Computers and cell phones barely <laughs> existed back then. So you're not too old for those of those, of those people too all here. I'm too old to do this. No, you're not. Yeah. A wise man said one time, just walk into the fear. I like that. Walk into the fear. And I've tried to do that through the years. And, you know, sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't, but always I've learned. And sometimes walking into the fear means, you know, just branching out and trying something and doing something that you have not done before. And I love the, the thought of trying something new, but also contributing to someone else. And that's usually what happens. It gets around to contribution. And that's probably my, my main focus in life is to contribute. And, uh, you can't do that unless you're willing to put yourself out there. Yeah. Well, Kristen, this is great. I just appreciate all that you shared with us. You have an amazing knowledge about this field and thank you so much for being there and helping the therapists and, and guiding and directing. And, you know, I just, I think it's a, a really good thing that you're doing in this field. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me. Bye-bye. Hey, Busy SLP, Char Beauchart here. Here's a tip from me to you. Every week, become a lot more informed. Sign up for Therapy Matters at charbochart.com. It's free. Learn our tech and language tips and techniques and tons of ideas for making your school therapy life easier and more effective. I've been a therapist for 30 plus years and I love to share what I've learned. Sign up for Therapy Matters, read it or listen to it at charbochart.com. You'll be glad you did because the therapy that you do matters. Sign up now. Thank you for listening to the speech link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, charvoshart.com, and also speechtherapypd.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless. 